Hello and welcome to episode 6 A Fair Hand Last time we left off in 1223 CE with the Sultan Iltutmesh having taken Sindh after successfully tap dancing his way through the minefield that was the Mongol invasions. Sometimes by force and just as often by clever diplomacy, he had gotten rid of his rival sultans and established Delhi's hegemony over most of North India, at least in theory. While his attention was turned west, many of the kings and chieftains who had initially submitted attempted to throw off his yoke. They had fortified themselves and prepared for the oncoming hostilities by forming alliances and winning over some of his subordinates to their cause. Hiltutmish was forced to send his armies after them and for the next 13 years, his exhausted forces would besiege and take one city only to have another declare its independence. Rajasthan and Gujarat were particularly troublesome, even decisively defeating his men on many occasions. These later campaigns were largely unsuccessful and are perhaps the only stain on his otherwise blameless military record. Eltutmish had other problems to deal with too. While Chinggis Khan had turned away at the Indus, his deputies and local commanders sought to lay their own hands on a piece of the golden Indian pie and on one pretext or another, they raided the Punjab over and over again. Eltutmish again applied his favourite formula of bribes, manipulation and a pinch of brute force to play them against each other and back local uprisings and resistance groups in a bid to save himself the trouble of using his own army. The results were mixed at best. India was saved the wholesale devastation that the rest of the Middle East was being subject to, but all the same, the Mongols slowly pushed their way further and further east into the Punjab. It would be nearly another century before they ceased to be a headache for the sultans in Delhi. But hey, at the end of it, they were still sultans in Delhi. That was more than can be said for the Gurids or the Khwarezmians. For his troubles, Iltutmish was rewarded in 1229 with the recognition of his legitimacy and sovereignty by the Caliph in Baghdad. Not that it amounted to much in reality, given that the Caliph is soon going to be executed by the Mongols. Still, it was something. Now that he had consolidated his own power, the question of who was to succeed him began to weigh heavily on his mind. His eldest son, Naziruddin, was the most obvious choice. He was competent and respected by the nobles and soldiery, and had even been declared heir apparent when he suddenly died in 1229. This left his now aging father in a bind. Iltutmish had other sons, of course. But if the primary sources are to be believed, he thought them to be thoroughly spoilt and incompetent. That he was right in thinking so would become apparent soon enough. He could always follow the Turkish tradition of letting them choose their own rulers. But which monarch does that when he has a chance of founding a dynasty? This finally led him to the only choice that seemed right to him. His daughter, Razia. Just because something seems right to the king does not necessarily mean that it seems right to his nobles and commanders. 
Women had ruled in Islamic and Turkish states before, but always as a regent of or through their personal influence on male puppets. A woman ruling publicly and in her own name over their dead bodies. Hiltusmesh patiently argued his choice with them. Razia had accompanied him on campaigns and had been left to rule in his stead while he was away. By all accounts, she had made a good administrator and was well liked by the masses. There wasn't any law in Islam that forbade women from holding power, at least none that couldn't be ignored. And if that benefited the Sultanate, why be so stubborn in rejecting the idea? Eventually, his nobles came around to his idea. Not because of his arguments though, they had been making calculations of their own. Iltutmish's remaining sons, they too believed to be thoroughly incompetent. But an incompetent Sultan was always good news for his nobles. It meant that one of them could wield all the power while he was left to face any consequences. A very tempting prospect by all standards. The only problem was that all the princes already had favourites and everyone was afraid that if they backed the wrong horse, they could end up being hung out to dry, quite literally. Razia was an interesting option though. A good Muslim that she was, she couldn't possibly rule without a male protector, could she? She would probably be desperate for a husband and all of them had a fair chance of wooing her. So, if they played their cards carefully, one of them could be Sultan in all but name. And she had no favourites, not at the moment at least. When El Tutmesh finally died in 1236 CE, he died confident that his nobles would back his choice for the succession. He had ruled for 26 years and had ensured that the Sultanate of Delhi was here to stay. That very night though, his carefully laid out succession plans were defenestrated. His eldest surviving son, Firoz, had himself declared Sultan. He proved his father's doubts about his abilities to be entirely justified and let his mother have a free reign in pursuing a campaign of petty vendetta against her rivals in the nobility, instead of trying to woo them over to his side. If there was one thing they did not like more than a woman bossing them around, it was a woman bossing them around and doing her best to undermine their interests. Just months into his rule, his commanders and nobles revolted and marched with an army to Delhi. He rode out to meet them and then rode back in when his supporters deserted en masse. All that was left for his commanders to enter the city, throw him and his mother in prison and decide who should rule in his stead. What is that you say? Oh, his sister has already dealt with him and the people have already declared her Sultana? Oh well, we'll just have to go with that then. Not that it upsets our plans much. Once the dust has settled down, she is going to choose one of us to do the actual ruling while she watches from behind a curtain, right? Right? Turns out Razia had no such intentions whatsoever. She refused to let them have their say and before long, they had laid siege to Delhi. With most of her supporters away in the provinces, Razia had no armies of her own to break out with 
and her attempts at getting messengers through their lines proved futile. When it looked like it was all over, she pulled off a spectacular coup that showed her to be every bit her father's daughter. First, she sent some of the enemy commanders outside the walls offers of rich rewards and high positions if they defected to her side. While they were haggling, she then snuck a few of her supporters into the enemy camp where they spread the word that some of their commanders were about to defect. This had the effect she had hoped for. The commanders, now suspicious of each other, promptly began bickering and forgot all about the siege. She managed to get word across to her forces and before long they were in Delhi, her enemies either surrendering or fleeing. Now secure in her position, she set about doing exactly the things the nobles didn't want her to do. Instead of letting one of them rule in her stead, she flouted all norms of feminine modesty and held open court personally, dressed as a male. She rode out at the head of her army and paid more deference to the people on the streets than to her nobles. She filled the administration with her supporters, even if they were of humble origins. The biggest beneficiaries of this policy were the newly converted Indian Muslims, who till then had been left out of the ruling class. This made her hugely popular with her subjects, even as the nobles gnashed their teeth in impotent rage. Eventually though, she made one too many enemies and plots began doing the rounds. If they were angry at being superseded by Indian Muslims in the administration, the old Turkish elite positively exploded with rage when she appointed a former Abyssinian slave named Yakut as her master of stables. The post of master of stables held virtually no power, but due to its holder's proximity to the person of the Sultana, it was regarded as an extremely prestigious position. By appointing a lowly slave to the post, Instead of a high-bound Turkish noble, her message was clear for all to see. She was not only stripping the old guard of their powers, but was also dispensing with any illusions of them being in charge. In 1239, a conspiracy to overthrow her had been formed, led by Aitigin, her grand chamberlain. Their only hurdle was that they could do nothing while she remained in Delhi. If they didn't want to be lynched in the streets by an angry mob, that is. They had to get her to leave the city somehow. In 1240 CE, they induced the governor of Lahore to revolt. When she left to crush it, they attempted to rally popular support to their cause by spreading rumours that Yakut, the lowly slave, was in fact the Sultana's lover. My, my, that is a scandal that cannot be ignored. Turns out that they had, not for the first time, seriously underestimated her. Within weeks, she was back in Delhi, having decisively defeated the rebels in executing their ringleaders. Now, the conspirators were desperate. Within just 15 days of her return, they induced another governor, this time of Batinda, to revolt. They got lucky this time. While on the march, some of the conspirators in her inner circle managed to overpower her guards and take her prisoner. When word reached Delhi, Aitigin and his men got to work purging her supporters from the palace and elevated her brother, Bahram, to the throne. 
having first obtained a promise from him that he would make no attempt at ruling personally. Razia was not done though and pulled one last trump card from her sleeve. She offered to marry the rebellious governor, Altunia, if he joined her cause and released her from prison. He agreed and soon she was marching back to Delhi with an army. But her luck had run out. Altunia's men, jealous of his sudden good fortune, deserted in droves and through the entire march in the heat of summer, her company was harassed and attacked by rebels and bandits. It was during one such assault by a group of bandits that Razia and her husband were killed. She had ruled for just four short years, but four prosperous ones. Before we go this time though, I'd just like to make a clarification. I know I had promised to deal with the administration of Iltutmish in the previous episode. But while I was researching for this though, I realized that interspersing bits of dry facts about taxes and land reforms in the midst of what's otherwise a pretty entertaining game of uh, musical chairs around the throne might just dampen the mood of the podcast. So I decided that I'd have a separate episode for that altogether once we have reached a few more centuries down the line. That way, there is a coherent narrative of the reforms that were made and at the same time, we won't be compromising on the rules of individual sultans either. So then, join me in the next episode as her brothers are placed on the throne and deposed one after the other till a humorless former slave of Caucasian origin decides that enough is enough and declares himself Sultan. Thank you.